Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jeremy Lent back to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Jeremy is an author whose writings investigate the underlying causes and the patterns of thought that have led our civilization to its current sustainability crisis. His most recent book is Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. It has just been published in the UK and will be published in the US in July. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining me once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, it's great to be here with you, Fergal. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, yes. Very excited to talk about your new book. I think it's coming out in the UK before the United States. Um, uh, we're getting a, a little bit of a head of the, head of the, the, the posse here. Uh, maybe just before we begin, if you could just give a brief overview of your work and so forth. Uh, I, I know we've spoken before, but just uh, it's good, good to, for, for new listeners. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and really, um, <clears throat> my work is focused a lot on looking at the underlying uh, causes of our civilization being in this precipitous place it's in right now, um, and also look at the underlying shifts that need to take place for us to really redirect where we're going as a as a species and as a global civilization. Um, so uh, my um, previous book, The Patterning Instinct, that came out a few years ago, looked at the, um, it was really a, like a cultural history. Uh, in fact, the subtitle was Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And it looked at the different ways in which different cultures' worldviews have shifted over time, all the way back from hunter-gatherer times to the present and potentially into the future. And my new book, that's, as you say, coming out in the UK in June um, is uh, called The Web of Meaning and Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And it lays out a worldview um, that uh, integrates modern scientific findings with ancient wisdom traditions from indigenous knowledge to Buddhism to Taoism to really show a worldview of connectedness that could enable us as a civilization to do that kind of redirection that we need. Fantastic. Looking forward to digging into uh, some of the, the ideas and connections that you make, which are, which are fascinating. Now, what, what, what's on your mind right now in terms of uh, you know, we're facing these these um, dramatic environmental crises. We're, we're, we're still in this COVID uh, uh, situation. I just wonder what in particular is, is, is keeping you awake? Well, what I notice is that, in fact, um, when I do uh, first wake up in the morning and read the headlines uh, around um, a whole lot of different media to sort of stay abreast of what's going on, I find myself reeling from... Um, some sort of you know cautious hope um, to sense of existential um, almost uh, just terror sometimes looking at what's actually happening. So it seems that we have these different forces, um, these forces for further um, separation and um, destructive forces, especially here in the United States where we look at what the how the Republican Party has basically transformed itself to what I call the party of death at this point, because that seems to be almost like a, a death cult that's taking over there. And, um, and then we see similar kinds of forces all around the world um, rises in the tyrannical power of authoritarian regimes, um, rises in far-right extremism. And um, and we see all this happening while the world is reeling towards catastrophe. And at the same time, there does seem to be a greater and greater, broader sense of global human consciousness and people joining together to actually um, put their energy to um, struggle for um, what is right and for life. So this overall question, which force will actually prevail? Which direction will we be heading in over the next um, decade and few decades? And I don't think any of us can really know. 
You're uh, uh, very interesting. Uh, I know you've been watching these uh, unfolding themes, as it were, or these these um, ideas and uh, policies and worldviews or cultures, ideas evolving over time. Um, and, and, and more recently, we've had... Uh, it seems like there's some changes going on in, in certainly in the economic sphere in terms of how uh, these questions are being uh, addressed. Uh, I'd be interested in getting getting your thoughts on that. You, you know, your book is hugely ambitious. It draws together philosophies and ideas, modern science, neuroscience, complexity, um, evolutionary biology, system science, systems thinking, I guess. Um, we're not going to be able to do justice to it, but I, I would like to try and... Uh, uh, focus on a few themes that are, uh, I suppose, recurring in your writings generally, uh, and look at this through an, an environmental sustainability lens. And uh, I guess one place to start would be uh, with with corporations. Uh, you've been a critic uh, uh, of, of the power of corporations and 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 you know what they're about. Um, of course, you're a Chicago MBA, <laughs> so you know whereof you speak. I guess um, from being inside uh, the corporate world, um, uh, you know, kind of. I think you call them Windigo monsters. Can you talk a little bit about uh, about you know what what are some of the the problems you have with corporations? And I, I'd like then to maybe. Um, uh, just get your sense uh, of, of the mood of the moment, really, because we have seen some pretty profound changes um, or some pretty pretty profound uh, 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 phenomena, I suppose you could say, uh, just recently in, in terms of at least with big oil, um, you know, uh, climate change directors being voted onto the board of Exxon against the wishes of the company. A court in the Netherlands ruling that that you know that Shell needs to reduce CO two emissions by almost fifty percent, you know, making the company I guess responsible for what they call a scope three emissions, um, and and uh, also there's you know a, a growing number of companies committed to net zero, um, and 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 you know driving forward the SDGs and so forth. Um, so a, a lot to unpack there maybe uh, to, to start off with, but I'm just wondering uh, if you could maybe. Uh, uh, think about or talk about uh, you, how how you perceive the corporation, particularly in light of the changes that that are that that, that are happening. And uh, we don't know, you know, wh- whether or not the, 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 there'll be a, you know, uh, in the Netherlands there'll be, you know, more court cases and so forth. Uh, whether Exxon is just a, you know, a, a one-off situation. Although there does seem to be more evidence that sh- shareholders are are, are, you know, are are backing more of these kind of uh, shareholder, um, yeah, sh- shareholder uh, initiatives around climate and so forth. Yeah, I think this is one of the most important topics, the whole question of corporations and their role in our society um, that is almost never talked about. Uh, to me, it's like the, the kind of elephant in the room or almost like the a dinosaur in the room perhaps might be a better way of, of thinking about it. But um, yeah, I, I think that the most important way to ever have any conversation about corporations is to begin with the fundamentals. That um, basically we need to understand that corporations you know, existed have existed in their sort of somewhat like their kind of current form since around the time uh, when colonialism and imperialism and um, the beginnings of capitalism appeared in Europe around the 17th century. And we need to understand that the corporations basically are vehicles um, for the most efficient um, uh, uh, expansion of the mode of uh, global capitalism. And it's all about um, fundamentally uh, increasing, growing and increasing profits um, at all costs, at any cost. And basically what they're about is really implementing the worldview of extractivism and exploitation. And you know, when you cut to the, the quick, basically what corporations are about is um, taking in capital to exploit those who are not the investors in the corporation as um, powerfully and as quickly as possible and to extract um, value out of everything out there. And whether, basically when it's non-humans, like looking at nature, just seeing that as natural resources to try to get a hold of as cheaply as possible in order to um, maximize the value in terms of financial value that can be gained. And uh, with, uh, with human beings too, um, 
to actually exploit them to the maximum possible, to exploit them as workers, um, which, of course, when somebody be belongs to a corporation, they're no longer um, people, but they're human resources, um, and to then um, exploit those who the corporation sees as bringing in money to them as consumers. So again, it turns people from rather than people into consumers. Um, and this is the fundamental uh, structure of the for-profit corporation that we have right now. And they've become so powerful that at the moment, if we look at the 100 largest economies in the world today, 69 out of that 100 are for-profit transnational corporations rather than countries. They basically own the world, to um, put it bluntly. And, and they use that power in every aspect of our lives, in media, in, in politics, uh, through corruption, in um, international institutions like the UN, um, as well as, of course, business, finance, um, economic theory, every single aspect of our human experience. They use it to pound the ideas for a worldview that enables them to continually maximize their profits. Um, now, you say that, and, and uh, that's very uh, well put, uh, but we own the corporations. It's our pensions. It's, you know, it's shareholders in the UK, uh, you know, the insurance companies for our insurance, you know, we're, we're, uh, policies and so forth. So it's not as if these are, you know, uh, organizations that are just owned by a handful of billionaires. Um, the, 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 the shareholders own the corporations. And, and in many cases, you know, large, large swathes of the public are. Well, I mean, it depends how you uh, consider ownership. Like you have to sort of look at the actual amounts. And, and the reality is that actually, um, and this is another statistic that's hard to even comprehend, but um, the wealthiest um, 26 um, billionaires in the world right now own as much wealth as half of the entire world's population, almost um, 4 billion people. Um, so it's if if it were true, if the if the ownership of the corporations were truly spread in a more sort of egalitarian basis around the world, and if all eight billion of us, you know, owned roughly one eight billionth share of the corporations, then it would be a whole different story. But that's really not the way it is. That um, the structures, as people like Thomas. Piketty and others have explained so well, the structures of this system over the last few hundred years have been put in place so that wealth continues to accrue to those who are already the wealthiest. Um, and those who are um, like left out of that uh, have a very difficult time uh, even, you know, to, to even get any kind of meager share of that wealth that is being created. And oftentimes yeah. what is being created is at their expense rather than for their benefit. Yes. And you make a good point. What does ownership mean? And, you know, and, and certainly on this podcast, I've had discussions. There, there, there are uh, severe criticisms of uh, the way shareholders, uh, large institutional shareholders, and there are, you know, three or four that uh, own the, 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 you know, that are predominant, uh, uh, Blackstone and State Street and so forth. They have not voted to support, uh, you know, climate amendments and so forth. And, it, you know, they have, broadly speaking, been seen to support, uh, you know, the, the management of these companies. Now, this is this changing? Is it, you know what happened with Exxon? You know one of the, the largest, most profitable corporations in the world historically, very powerful against the wishes of the, the you know the company. Uh, this this small activist uh, shareholder managed to get two climate change uh, directors on the board. Yes, does that signal something deeper? And Blackstone supported mm -hmm. this. Yeah, I think that um, that is a really. Um, very wonderful development. And um, I, I totally applaud the incredible activism um, that, you know, the great work that went into making that happen. But so, but ha having said that, I do think it's important to again, look at the, the fundamentals we're talking about and look at the um, level of the shift that, we're, that, that is actually taking place. Um, because uh, again, if we, if we understand that corporations are really all about um, maximizing shareholder value above all else. And we recognize that like 
you know, as we know, in the United States, they're legally considered to be persons. And that's um, to some degree true of other parts of the world. And if they were persons and in terms of actual human beings, they would only they'd have to be recognized as being psychopaths who basically are just um, looking to optimize just one thing at the expense of any other consideration. So then you have to ask, well, what does this mean if a corporation actually, um, you know, has directors who are voted on to consider climate uh, breakdown as opposed to profits. But then when you actually look the next level down, what you see is certainly in the case of Exxon, um, and Chevron also has been undergoing some of these um, uh, um, sort of major uh, sort of conniptions in their board um, setup and stuff. But the if you actually look at what has been um, the arguments that are being made uh, by people like BlackRock, um, what what they're saying is not that uh, we have to change that shareholder value focus, but they're basically saying um, in order to maintain, you know, longer term shareholder value, and in, yes. uh, we yeah, have absolutely. to recognize, yes. you know, that basically yeah. in a world that is com uh, completely devastated through climate breakdown, um, will reduce value for the company. And if the world shifts yeah, yeah. Um, away from fossil fuels to try to avoid that total collapse, that'll be bad for Exxon or uh, Chevron's profits. And so we have to sort of get longer term and more thoughtful about it. So it's not really changing yeah. the DNA of the organization so much as basically um, trying to shift the time horizon with which the corporation is trying to maximize its um, profits above all else. And that's a great development. Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to diminish the major step that's been taking place. But, but according to that, though, I do think that the, what we saw in the Netherlands, where there was- Yeah, I was going to say that if you put the two of them together, it's because it's, this is the other argument. And as you say, that corporations uh, you know, maximize profits and the Supreme Court in Delaware uh, you know, supports that. Uh, and, and, and that's the way it works. And, and indeed, the investors have a fiduciary responsibility in a similar way. This uh, decision in, in the Netherlands, it, it, on the face of it, could potentially mean actually, you know, uh, corporations, this overrides the fiduciary responsibility that the court just said, you know, uh, shareholders end of, you just have to do this. And that's it. You're responsible for these uh, emissions. You've got to get them in, in order. And there's no doesn't seem to be any discussion about, you know, what the, what the implications are for shareholders and shareholders. rights. Exactly. And that's why I actually think that, you know, even though they all happen on the same day, what they're now calling Black yes. Wednesday, uh, which <laughs> maybe we should call that sort of green black Wednesday or something. But um, yeah. uh, but they're very they're qualitatively different in the sense that yeah. the court ruling um, in the Netherlands actually uh, shifts and if it becomes a precedent, um, it actually yeah. shifts the actual power dynamics that has been prevalent for so long, for um, not only decades, but e even centuries. It actually kind of changes the whole way of considering the role of the corporation in um, in the public experience, in the, in the human experience. Um, and that, I think, is hopeful. Because my own view as to really the only way we can shift this incredible stranglehold that basically a system of psychopaths has over the human future um, is to change the way we think about the corporate charter. Is that, I mean, originally when corporations were chartered, it was for a specific purpose. The government allowed them to have this special um, uh, kind of structure where Profits could accrue to these investors, but they don't have to accept all of the downside. That's an incredible, um, like, sort of special benefit to have. And governments would only procure that on a corporation for a specific purpose and for a specific time period. And um, as time went on, that specificity got lost. And so now we just take it for granted that corporations can essentially do whatever they want for as long as they want. But imagine a world where corporate charters for any large corporation above a certain size had to be renewed, say, let's say every five years. Um, and they could only be renewed if they followed a triple bottom line, where in addition to shareholder profits, they had to pursue a bottom line 
of what is sometimes called people and planet. So um, a bottom line, looking for the well-being of any constituency um, that is related to the company, including employers, people who live in the areas of their plants, consumers, et cetera, um, and the planet, meaning um, the non-human world, the, res- the areas where they sort of extract their resources and the pollution that um, impacts they have on the world in general. And imagine if um, there was actually a panel um, chosen of um, regular people not um, some officials that could be simply corrupted to sort of go ahead with it, that had to make the determination every five years, has this corporation actually met those triple bottom lines or should that charter be um, rescinded? I think that would fundamentally change the DNA. It's essentially be like um, this court ruling we just saw in the Netherlands, but amplified you know, to the nth degree um, where corporations themselves would um, actually start making their daily decisions based not only on that um, uh, maximizing profits, but on these other two factors. Um, and I think we'd lead to a complete shift in, um, in behavior um, without, you know, and it's still, we'd still be a part of this capitalist world. It's not, that's only just one small incremental shift, but I think it could be huge. Very interesting, a, a profound, profoundly different outcome uh, with, with those kind of uh, that approach, the structure and so forth. Uh, uh, one more question on this, um, if, if I may. I mean, your book is full of uh, philosophies and, uh, and, and you know, historical ideas and, and different cultures. Uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're very much in the, in the uh, current moment with corporations. But um, I, I'd be interested to get your thought because, again, um, at the same time unfolding, there, there is a tremendous momentum and uh, certainly uh, rhetoric um, from corporations about sustainability. There's a lot going on. There are increasing uh, vast numbers of, of companies are making uh, net zero commitments uh, and uh, driving uh, in that direction, you know, spearheading in many ways uh, some of the climate initiatives, the, the, the SDGs and so forth. And at, at the same time as that's happening, there are... Uh, new approaches are being uh, put in place and right now in terms of natural capital, valuing nature, uh, developing various carbon markets, carbon offsets. Uh, so, you know, green, the green economy is big business. And, um, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the famous quote, um, that from from the former uh, chief of, of the, the Bank of England saying that um, the, the the net zero represents the greatest economic opportunity of our age, um, so there there the, the, the are changes afoot. COP twenty six is coming up. The carbon markets are is a big part of that. I think. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this valuing nature? It's the idea being, if you don't value nature, it gets exploited. Uh, we need to value it. Put it on balance sheets. And so forth. A lot of momentum there. Is this good news, Jeremy? Um, I think that well, there are short-term positives to this uh, sort of increasing acceptance as kind of quote valuing nature. I think that at a deeper level, it's really um, heading towards even further disaster. Um, and you know, I hate to sort of <laughs> keep pouring cold water on what uh, people want to sort of. Uh, feel some optimism about. But we have to recognize that um, this whole notion of valuing nature uh, from an underlying, when we look at the kind of underlying assumptions behind it, it's essentially like um, people having given up on the very notion that nature itself can be viewed as having intrinsic value and essentially saying, look, um, global capitalism and the whole neoliberal um, sort of concept, everything should be incorporated into the sort of money financial system is so powerful that we just have to give up and just hope that nature itself gets incorporated in that. So I think there are some real terrible dangers to that. You know, it was the idea of, of seeing nature as a resource that can be valued um, was you know, something that actually some of the best leading environmental thinkers um, some decades ago came up with, people like Paul Ehrlich and Gretchen Daly. Uh, where some of the pioneers in come, saying, well, like, look, we, these corporations are so powerful. Government institutions are so powerful. We need to speak to them in a language they can understand 
So um, let's talk to them about the valuation. If they recognize this value to this asset of nature, they might not want to destroy it so badly. Great idea. And it's been incredibly powerful. But in the implications are disastrous. So think about it, for example, supposing um, someone's wanting to try to sort of save a coral reef off some uh, you know, area that some company is thinking they want to turn into a resort instead. Um, so they might say, well, look, um, the coral reef is worth saving because uh, you know, it, it's, got, it's got value. People can be diving and enjoy the beautiful life of it and look at all the extra fish that it brings, et cetera, et cetera. But then if that coral reef um, starts to get sick, um, from all the the bleaching events that are taking place because of the increased heat of the oceans and the increased acidification. Well, obviously, it has less value, right? So um, at some point, if some corporation's making its trade-off decisions or even a government institution, they say, well, we've, we valued it before at X million, but now it's really only valued half that much. So let's um, it's actually more valuable to actually build an industrial plant there now. So let's just do that and just um, give up on the rest of the value. Or if we look at um, the Arctic ice um, cap, which is you know expected to be melting completely over the next couple of decades. Um, well, you know, um, people in the old Trump regime just a couple of years ago have gone on record saying this is the best thing for business. You know, we can um, our shipping fleets can. Uh, and transport fossil fuels more easily um, from one place to another across the world. We can start mining for uranium and other kinds of products there. So when you start looking at nature as just being part of the financial value system of uh, this sort of growth-based global economy, you've essentially given up. Um, you've essentially accepted defeat that there's any other value system to look at rather than simple exploitation of all of life on this earth. So I think even though it might win a few battles in the short term, the underlying um, shift in ideology that takes place with that is far more dangerous than any positives we might see incrementally. Yeah, it's very interesting, very interesting. And uh, it, it shows also the, uh, the the kind of mentality of, of, of the carrots. Um, you know, uh, what about regulation? <laughs> if, you know, destroying the, you know, environmental resources is not a good thing, why don't we regulate them uh, against them rather than, you know, making tying it into some profit uh, system? Some people would argue. And, you know, you don't hear so much on the regulatory side of things or uh, companies uh, about the possibilities. They don't seem to like it. Voluntary, voluntary regulation, maybe something like that. Um, but a, a big area. Very interesting to get your, your thoughts. That, yeah. now, and if I can just add, uh, by the way, just as you mentioned regulation there, um, I just wanted to make a pitch for an incredibly um, powerful book on this very topic by an English professor called David White called um, Ecocide, Kill the Corporation Before It Kills Us, uh, which I guess is pretty clear <laughs> where, where he's coming from. But he makes- middle of the, really middle, A middle of the road, uh, <laughs> right way. Yeah. Exactly. But he, he makes a great point about regulation that we think of it as being, oh, this is a positive thing. This is basically, um, you know, in, uh, governments trying to stop corporations from doing bad things. But we need to recognize that actually most regulation is structured not to actually stop corporations from doing harm, but actually to permit them to do harm in ways that allow them to do harm to people, employees, and the rest of the living earth in a more sustainable way for a little bit longer than if they were just uh, looking for the total short term. So in, this, in oh, oh, the same way yes. that when we regulate, say if we're looking at regulating um, something in our body, thinking like the, the heart works to regulate blood flow through the, through the body, that doesn't mean the heart's stopping the blood flowing. It means it's actually making sure that it flows in an optimal way for the long term. So a lot of the time regulations work not to actually stop the harm, but to enable the harm to be done in a way that it can be done more forcefully and for longer than otherwise. I think that's a really profound understanding that was new to me. And I, I really want to encourage people to think about it in this different way. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. The dangers of generalizations and the need for more granular. There's good regulation and bad regulation, clearly, as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, w- worth checking that out. Uh, thank you for the tip, uh, Jeremy. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. Clearly, you you have strong views about the power of corporations today and our current economic setup. You talk about neoliberalism, the kind of deregulated market-driven economy. What's the deeper underpinnings, would you say, at least a few of them? You you talk about a worldview in your book, and it's at the heart of of, of really your thinking. What do you mean by a worldview? And what would you say are some of the characteristics of the current worldview, which are which are obviously manifesting in in the current you know economic moment and the power of the corporations and the way we see things unfolding? Yeah. Um, thanks. That's a deep issue, deep question. Because right? a, a worldview is really one of perhaps the most powerful uh, underlying force that drives how each of us as people behave and how our societies behave. And a worldview really is like a lens through which people see the world. And just like a, a lens is, just if we think of our eye as a lens, Oftentimes, when we use a lens, we use it without even realizing we're seeing through a lens. So the whole point about that is that what we see, we think is just reality as it is. But actually, it's reality as patterned according to a set of assumptions, usually made implicitly, um, that that worldview has. That we, as we grow up, we kind of accept, sometimes without even explicitly ever thinking about it, but oftentimes um, it's there in, in like infusing um, the kind of ways our values and what we think is important. So a worldview basically um, is something because it's there all the time, it's so incredibly powerful in influencing how we act. So our current worldview, for example, um, implicitly says things like um, nature is separate from humans. Nature is basically a machine or a resource. It doesn't have sort of life or intrinsic value of its own. Um, and humans uh, in ourselves, um, and in fact, all of life um, is selfish, um, that our genes are selfish. And so all of life evolved to be as selfish and competitive as possible. Humans are just as selfish um, and in fact, even more accomplished at being selfish than um, other creatures. And because of this intrinsic selfishness, um, that uh, actually capitalism works so well because it sort of harnesses that. It allows um, our selfishness to be used for the maximum benefit of everybody. Um, and it also, um, a worldview also tells us that our identity is very much um, in, in this kind of individual existence, that each of us has really our, um, only this individual identity which maybe extends to our family, but really not beyond um, that very much. And as a result of that separateness, um, it's completely okay to then exploit um, others around us, to exploit the rest of humanity and the rest of, um, of life on earth. So those are the fundamental presumptions of our current worldview. And what people tend not to realize is that that is very specific to just a way of thinking that developed um, in Europe and the last few hundred years, which only became global through the um, aggressive you know, colonization um, that the European countries achieved um, y- using their technology and power and ruthlessness, essentially, to colonize the rest of the world. So now, because of their success, we just grow up in this worldview without realizing that there are other ways 
very different ways to see ourselves on this earth and to develop our sense of values. And in your book, you trace uh, some of the ideas and the alternative ways of looking at, at nature, the ways of uh, understanding our relationship to one another, interdependence, and some of the spiritual traditions underlying those. Can you maybe talk a little bit about those? You 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 emphasize in particular uh, that Neo Confucians, um, not a group uh, of of thinkers that I I come across before. Uh, you give us, can you give us a little bit of an overview of 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 your thinking there and and, and what the connection is with with, with the worldview. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Falcon. Well, what's so fascinating is that if you look, basically, it's any uh, indigenous tradition across the world, um, whether it's in steaming jungles or whether it's in ice caps or the desert or wherever it might be, um, those traditions hold an amazing amount of um, underlying sort of ontological precepts or like uh, implicit assumptions about the universe in common. Um, and fundamentally, they all uh, talk about how we are interrelated, not just all humans related to each other, but um, th- seeing all of the living earth around us, all of life as being our relations. Um, and so we might kind of, uh, you know, modern scientists often sort of poo-poo that and say, oh, well, that's kind of, you know, sweet, nice little um old-fashioned way of looking at things, but that's not really the way it is. Um, But we also see other great wisdom traditions, whether it's Buddhism or Taoism, or as you were mentioning, Neo-Confucianism in China, which kind of incorporates both Buddhism, Taoism, and uh, ancient Confucian ideas. Um, These traditions also talk about our deep interrelationship as being fundamental to making sense of things. Um, What I found over years of research so fascinating is that these ideas are not just a simple matter of wishful thinking. And and oftentimes we are given this... um, sort of choice by uh, modern pundits who say, well, you know, you might like those ideas, but they're not very scientific. So you can choose to live a more spiritual life just as long as you recognize that um, this is not what science tells us. But what's so fascinating is that in recent decades, modern science, and we're not just talking about some sort of far-fetched ideas, we're talking about rigorous science with Nobel laureates winning um, Nobel Prizes for this kind of science, sciences of connection, like complexity theory um, and systems biology and cognitive neuroscience. Um, all these sciences points to the same underlying sense of deep interconnectedness that those wisdom traditions um, have been talking about for millennia. So this idea of actually a worldview of interconnectedness is not at all something that is anti-scientific, but on the contrary, is actually consistent with the findings of what science is actually telling us. And this worldview that most people think is scientifically based, this rational worldview of, um, uh, of separation, is actually based on outmoded scientific theories, many of them that have been outmoded for um, decades or centuries, but it hasn't yet achieved um, a full-blown sort of understanding in mainstream thinking. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, what what should we do? <laughs> what can we do? How do, do you have a sense, do you have a sense how, how values change? Is this something that you think that, you know, one needs to, you know, consciously organizationally think about uh you know uh, uh helping people understand you know communicating about this i mean do you do you, I, I, what they, i guess the theory of change or, or some sense of 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 you know what the dynamics are uh that unfold in, in a civilization at a, at a moment like this or indeed any moment of of, of profound change yes i i think that um for each of us individually there is uh there is a, a responsibility, really, to um, look to try to really get a sense of the messages that are being told to us from the media and from places of authority, and ask ourselves really deeply: Does this make sense to me, or is there some other way of making sense of things? So, I think um, a deep inquiry for each of us is an important, uh, really, obligation for those of us who 
actually, once we realize that we're actually all part of redirecting humanity's future together. And I think that this is not just uh, obviously and sort of individual based practice that I'm talking about, but as a society, these uh, transformational shifts in worldview have to happen at an incredibly rapid pace. And to your question about how worldviews actually change, what is interesting is that actually worldviews can be incredibly resilient. Um, I mean, you can have a worldview like Christianity um, that can, has lasted for millennia. Um, and in ancient China, the um, traditional Confucian worldview also lasted for thousands of years and, until it was overturned about 100 or so years ago. And when you actually look at how worldviews actually change, um, what it tends to be is and the old worldview starts to actually fall apart for one reason or another. You know, when the scientific revolution happened, the old worldview of Christianity fell apart because of groups of people getting together and building on each other's insights to look at a different way of making sense of the world that um, really did actually pervade uh, society over a number of generations. If you look at the way the traditional Chinese worldview fell apart, it was very different. There it fell apart because the society itself um, got essentially dominated by Western powers. Um, and those in positions of authority became humiliated and weakened. And so younger generations grew up saying, we're rejecting this worldview of our parents. It's just led to humiliation. We need to, um, and basically they turned to the West and they looked to that Western worldview as the dominant power um, to form their own way of making sense of things. So then if we look at our modern situation right now, What's fascinating is that we are seeing a shifting worldview because our current society that has been so, seems so powerful and uh, where this worldview has been so dominant is unraveling because of climate breakdown, because of the destruction of nature around us, because of these unbelievable inequalities. Um, things really are unraveling. And as they unravel, New, the new generation of people growing up right now, people in Greta Thunberg's generation, and young people um, start to discover that when they are middle-aged, they're going to be um, basically uh, in a world that um, where civilization itself may be like at risk of getting destroyed, that their very livelihood, their chances of living a long and healthy and happy life are getting diminished by what is getting done right now. These people are starting to look around for another way of making sense of things, which is why there is this tremendous opportunity right now for a shift in worldview that we haven't seen, you know, magnitude that we haven't seen in many centuries. Very, very interesting. And I know you've spent some time thinking about and talking about this idea of what, what you talk about as an ecological civilization. And I'm wondering whether you can tell us a little bit what that might look like. I mean, on the face of it, it, it sounds good. And I guess danger of, of, of words and so forth. I mean, the Chinese talk about ecological civilization. <laughs> right. but it comes in a very authoritarian version. And indeed, a uh, European politician recently said this was their vision that Europe would be the leading ecological civilization. That politician was Marie Le Pen. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, everybody's on board for the, you know, the new, greener, better, uh, you know, ecological future. Can you talk a little bit about what, what your sense of what a, a true ecological civilization would look like? Yes, thanks. And uh, really great that you point out some of these uh, it's it's like this notion of greenwashing. So even before an ecological civilization begins to take place, it's already being uh, sort of greenwashed by some of the least ecological minded of um, like forces around there in the world today. Um, but yeah, the I'm personally incredibly excited by this idea, this vision of an ecological civilization. And of course, you know the the phrase itself, um, as you say, has been used uh, in different. Uh, constituencies for a while now. But the ecological civilization that I'm talking about is this idea of actually um, recognizing that our current civilization is based on a, 
a foundation of wealth accumulation. It's based on a foundation of extraction and exploitation. And as long as we base anything on that foundation, it's going to keep extracting and keep exploiting. So an ecological civilization, in my perspective, is one where we actually change the very foundation of our civilization itself to one that is based on the primacy of life, one that is fundamentally life-affirming. And it looks to the principles that enable ecosystems in the natural world to thrive and to remain healthy and resilient, sometimes over millions and millions of years, even in the face of all kinds of changes that take place. Um, and look at those principles that allow that in nature, and then explore how those principles could be applied to human society to actually um, create a civilization, a form of economics, a form of um, city life, a form of social communication, a form of governance um, that would be based not on simply accepting whatever we took from our previous generation um, within this current uh, um, operating system that we're living in, but actually explore what that would look like if it was built on a life-affirming operating system. Yeah, that's a very uh, powerful vision. What What would you say if someone said to you, "Well, that's wishful thinking"? You know, that's uh, you know, I've been to the local town hall. We can't even agree on you know uh, parking, uh, you know, limits or restrictions <laughs> in our local area. People are disagreeing about you know. We're talking about billions of people. You know, over what kind of time frame are you thinking about this? And and what what is your response to? Of course, it'd be nice if people were kind to each other, but hey, you know, it, it doesn't always happen. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I think that what we need to understand is that um, really the definition of wishful thinking um, is what is mainstream thinking right now is the belief that we can keep growing our society um, on an uh, on an earth that is groaning under the weight and um, that is rapidly losing um, the richness of its life. The belief that we can kind of essentially ignore climate breakdown. Um, and keep emitting um, uh, pollution into the air, that we can keep growing our economics, even when um, this notion of green growth has been shown categorically to be just an illusion. Um, I think wishful thinking is the idea that we can have a civilization that's intact a century from now at this pace. So I think we have to recognize that we are heading towards some sort of cataclysmic change in our society over the next few decades. Either that's going to be a total collapse of our civilization, or it could potentially be this kind of bifurcation where it's a collapse for most people on earth and a collapse for most living systems. And maybe some small elite finds some way to barricade themselves in and continue to sort of, um, you know, uh, come up with flights to Mars and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, or, we actually change this operating system to actually find a way where we as human beings can live in a more sustainable way with each other and with the earth. So I think we need to recognize these are desperate times and they call for fundamental shifts. So rather than wishful thinking, it's almost like the only way that we can actually find ourselves looking to a, a, a real flourishing future for humanity is to change the fundamentals. Whether that can be done in time, I think we need to um, look at the changes that are taking place and see that actually, in spite of the headlines that look so desperate, there's incredibly um, growing and powerful sense of human solidarity, of a sense of shared humanity, and a sh and great amount of grassroots organizing taking place. And th there's en endless examples of that. But those are the roots, basically, of what an ecological civilization could look like um, as they begin to uh, connect up together. Now, you, you talk about these values and so forth. Uncle Bob in your book uh, is a very interesting character and speaks uh, uh, a lot for, for I think, uh, views that are, are not unusual and uh, are, 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 are quite general and uh, to do with various aspects of, I suppose, progress. And, uh, you know, and, and we haven't discussed that or criticisms of corporations and so forth that, that, and, and, you know, the structural aspects of it you know at the same time great wealth has been provided I mean, uncle bob says here just look at the rise in material prosperity over the last couple of hundred years he exhorts a poor person today enjoys choices in clothing 
food and transportation that even the wealthiest couldn't have dreamed of in the past in health and education and just about every field, the progress we've made has been enormous. That's largely because of capitalism, which has proven itself as the best system for innovation and progress. Now, that's Uncle Bob. So Uncle Bob, uh, you know, he makes some good points. Um, yes, we, you know, Uncle Bob is really a, an interesting character, like you say, because in, in the book, he comes up a, a few times and uh, he is really mouthing off, you know, a lot of the statements that we do hear um, from our sort of talking heads on TV, um, implicitly, you know, from corporate executives. And there are um, people like um, Steven Pinker who have written books that basically, you know, give the ammunition to the Uncle Bobs of the world to say, actually, you know, um, all these people complaining about what's going on, it's, it's nonsense. Just look at this progress taking place. But, you know, I give an example to um, think about uh, whether we should really view this as progress, this way in which we are exploiting the resources of the world and sort of calling them resources, basically, um, as fast as possible. Like, imagine you have a friend um, who inherited great wealth um, from his parents, but the it was an annuity. He was only allowed to sort of live off a certain amount each year because they figured that he couldn't really be that responsible. So he hires a bunch of lawyers and accountants, and he finds a way to sort of um, change the roles of his annuity so he can access more and more of his wealth at a faster and faster rate. And he starts living in this palatial surroundings and going on his private jet. And you, you know, he you pay him a visit someday. He says, "Look at this! Look at the." Pro- progress I'm making. Isn't this great? And meanwhile, you know, his accountants are telling him that he can't maintain this for more than a couple more years because then he'll be bankrupt. And you look at him and you'd, you'd think this guy's a little bit nuts talking about this as progress. And similarly, we're in this um, place right now where we're using the earth's um, natural richness at a multiple times the amount that would be needed for it to be sustainable in any way. And we're actually looking at global gross domestic product tripling by the year 2060. And this is not according to some environmental forecast. This is according to um, the, uh, I I think it's the the IMF forecast. This is like this sort of the, the banker's forecast for the future. And so all this destruction that's taking place right now, we're looking at triple that in just the next few decades. And that's what's so unsustainable. And when you ask about progress, you have to say basically progress for who, even if you start looking at the material progress, you have to recognize that for most human beings um, in the last few hundred years, um, they have been um, essentially destroyed as a result of the so-called progress um, if you, whether it's indigenous populations around the world that have been decimated, sometimes driven to extinction. Um, if you look at the incredible uh, exploitation of non-white people, look at the racism in um, the United States, or look at the amazing different differentials between the global north and the global south, where this idea of progress gets to be completely transformed when you realize that, for example, when the UK colonized India, India was uh, one, perhaps the most prosperous country on earth and um, had something like, I think, 25 to 30% of the global GDP. That got destroyed um, uh, by the British, uh, basically taking all that industrial power and um, sacrificing it for their own benefits. So progress for whom is another question. And that doesn't even look at the um, non-human world that we share Uh, earth with who have been decimated but are you overlooking the more recent uh, i mean uh, tragic and brutal uh, as that is are you overlooking the 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 recent economic growth that you know 800 million people that have been you know brought out of poverty according to various sets of figures you know uh, tremendous uh, growth uh, in you know removal of of extreme poverty in in recent decades well and even those numbers really have been um, kind of uh, really re- reoriented to sort of help the, the this kind of um, Bill Gates type of 
um, assessment of what's really going on. And I point people to the economist, Jason Hickel, who I, I believe um, has been um, ha- has interviewed with you um, before, if I'm not mistaken, who points out that actually, if you look at the absolute numbers of people who are in poverty, um, and that is defined, we can really define that properly as roughly what experts say is it takes roughly $7.40 a day to um, give people enough income to um, expect basic nutrition and a normal life expectancy. So I think that's a fair definition of uh, like a real poverty line. And the number who um, earn less than that $7.40 a day has actually increased over the past few decades. So it's now over 4 billion people, more than half of humanity, um, are basically not able to access enough nutrition to expect a normal life expectancy, even while there's 26 billionaires own as much wealth as that entire those entire 4 billion people I just talked about. So again, I think these numbers have been um, kind of shifted to uh, just kind of support different agendas. Um, not to mention the fact that even when you go one level deeper at those numbers, um, we're just talking about a number of uh, basically an income level, a financial income level. And a lot of the time, what you find out is that the quality of life that has been sacrificed to achieve that income level um, has been eviscerated. So for example, imagine in China, a village um, that where uh, there was a a rural lifestyle where most of the commerce that took place was probably not even part of a financial system. You know, people grew crops and they ate what they grew and there might've been a lot of bartering going on. And somebody might've applied a dollar amount and said, oh, these people are impoverished. They have virtually no no money at all. So some, so, you know, um, there's this urbanization takes place and their fields get polluted and a plant uh, some industrial plan gets put in place, starts employing them. Um, uh, maybe they're um, they're now having to work incredible hours, almost like starvation wages in this plant. They no longer can grow their own crops. So the dollars that they actually do earn, they end up having to sort of buy things like Coca Cola to drink their food, or kind of um, you know um, these kind of absolutely nutritionless foods that corporations hawk on them at the cheapest level so that they basically gain and become obese um, even while they're under and yeah, actually below the level of nutrition they need. And, and then you can say, great, these people have now increased their wealth. So look at this progress. So you have this incredible loss in the quality of life, even while um, some of these numbers look like they are somewhat positive if you cherry pick them in the right way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One one question I'd like to ask just before we finish, and not, not a topic we've touched on. You live in California. What about technology? Role of technology? We read daily in the newspapers technological breakthroughs, whether it's uh, hydrogen energy or just some some really remarkable uh, technological breakthroughs. Will technology play a, a key role in, 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 in the ecological civilization? It, will that save us? Um, well, I think technology will play a key role in any uh, kind of civilization, whether it's our current one now um, or an ecological civilization. The idea of an ecological civilization is definitely not um, an anti-technology vision. Um, but technology has to be transformed, just like everything else, to really be life-affirming. Right now, uh, the, there's this kind of notion of green growth, which, as, as I've talked about, um, has been shown categorically to be nonsense. That when there are technological innovations that are made now, um, they're, rather than being used to reduce the amount of pollution or material footprint we use, um, they're actually used to then make the exploitation um, that is already taking place um, more efficient. So um, there is growth that takes place as a result of technological innovation, but it's not green growth. It actually just adds further to uh, extractivism and pollution. Um, I think technology has to be re-envisioned um, to be asked uh, when people do develop new tech- technological innovations has to be, what can I do that is truly life-affirming? And when technologies do 
um, show themselves to have promise. They have to be developed in ways outside outside of that capitalist for-profit uh, global corporate network. And that's a tall order in our world today, which is why we need to change the fundamentals. But so, you know, great innovations all around, whether it's in renewables, whether it's in um, things like um, uh, sort of impossible burgers or the um, uh, sort of vegan approaches to um, yeah, vegan meats, or whether it's there's so many different things that we need to do as part of any transformation of our life, but they have to be done outside of this profit-based, profit-maximization worldview. Otherwise, they just end up being a more uh, sort of greener, uh, greenwashed kind of way of exploiting the earth even faster. What's next for you? <laughs> Well, maybe not surprisingly for uh, people who are listening to this podcast, actually, I'm uh, starting to put together um, the next book I intend to write, which is about an ecological civilization. Uh, the, um, the working title is uh, Future Flourishing Pathways Toward an Ecological Civilization. And I think that um, I'm so excited about that because it, it might sound from this interview, I'm very negative about a lot of things, but I kind of want to emphasize I'm only negative about these kind of false solutions that are driving us towards this precipice. Um, I've got just as much energy um, that feels positive about the possibility of the transformational change that we do need for a, a real flourishing future for humanity. And so that's uh, the next book I intend to write is um, to help flesh out this vision of what's possible. Well, that's a great vision, Jeremy, and a wonderful discussion. So I thank you so much for the work you've done, for your uh, thoughts, and for sharing them with us today. And I wish you all the best in the future, Jeremy. Thank you so much, Phil. Great talking with you today. If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Aaron Stibbe's book, Ecolinguistics, Language, Ecology, and the Stories We Live By which has recently been published in a second edition. This groundbreaking book reveals the stories that underpin unequal and unsustainable societies and searches for inspirational forms of language that can help rebuild a kinder, more ecological world. It's supported by a free online course called The Stories We Live By. Just type the name into Google and you can find it. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.